My name is Claire Press, and this is Wardrobe Crisis, the podcast that unzips fashion's issues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ah, are we starting? <laughs> we are seeing a kind of almost Zoolander-esque caricature of how excessive fashion can be. Our look shifting was like 16 to 20 hours a day. I would work like 450 hours in a month and making only $6. Creativity is one of the most powerful things that humans have. We underestimate the power of beauty and the power of humour. These are qualities that connect people and connectivity is a really potent thing right now. Don't point a finger, impart knowledge and information instead. Plus size modelling can go suck it. Um, <laughs> it's our job as designers to explore and discover beauty everywhere. So your voice is crucial and powerful in the supply chain. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. We are so hot right now. Oh, it's getting hot. My parents feel that this is a waste of time. I don't get Last week, I interviewed Karen Walker while wearing a pair of her sunglasses indoors. <laughs> I've got a ridiculous number of pairs of sunglasses, expensive ones, cheap ones, vintage ones, because I'm basically a vole who can't handle the glare. I'm from Leeds, so I was not made for Australian sunshine. There is this pair of Tom's sunglasses that I've been wearing with everything lately. If you follow me on Instagram... And you should, it's at Mrs. Press. You might have seen me in them. But I only just noticed that there's something printed on the top of the frames. They read, give sight. So Tom's is famous for its one-for-one business model. In a way, it couldn't be a simpler idea. You sell a pair of shoes, you give a pair away to someone who has no shoes. You sell a pair of sunglasses and you give either a pair of glasses or the chance to be treated by an eye doctor to someone in need. Easy? Yeah, it's actually highly complicated. Imagine the organisation that goes behind that. In today's episode, we are getting up close and personal with Tom's founder, Blake Mykoski. Blake is a visionary business leader. He's also an all-around top bloke. He's got a fab Texan drawl. He is the father of two young kids. He's a guy who loves surfing and hiking and camping. He's an ex-contestant on The Amazing Race. That might explain his competitive streak. And he is one of those people who was determined to be an entrepreneur from a very young age. He was on, I think it was his fourth business by the time he started Tom's in 2006. Since then, the company has given away more than 80 million pairs of shoes. Bottom line, that helps kids walk to school. Now, this model is not without its critics. Some say that donating shoes might not be the best way to help poor communities. And obviously, it's a complex issue. But over the years, Blake has built something wonderful. It has positive impacts in all sorts of different areas. It's not just the shoes, which are rad. Tom's also works with their not-for-profit partners to provide different services in places where they're lacking. So, for example, to the sunglasses, we can add bags, which support new mums in areas where infection is a leading cause of death for mums and newborns. And what they do is they provide safe birthing kits and training for skilled attendants. They've also partnered with organisations in the US that work to tackle bullying in schools. And those programmes are funded partly through the sales of Tom's backpacks. 
Their coffee business, Tom's Roasting Co., works with Water for People. And what they do is work in communities to develop clean water systems. And ultimately, the aim is for them to be community run and owned. As Blake tells us, they're always looking to do better, to do more and to be the best they can. It's inspirational stuff. We did this interview last month by Skype, just before Blake and his wife Heather welcomed their second child, which you'll hear him mention. So it was a girl and she was born, can you believe it, on the International Day of the Girl, which is the cutest thing ever. This episode is full of insights in how changemakers can make a difference and how we all might as individuals follow our dreams. It's a must-listen for anyone interested in social enterprises. Blake is one of the most successful players in this space, and in this rare interview, I get the chance to pick his brains for you about how he built Tom's and what it takes to succeed. I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. And on another note, I'd like to say an enormous thank you to all the fantastic listeners who keep rating me and reviewing me in iTunes and also who've become my patrons. It makes me grin from ear to ear. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hello. Hello, Blake. Okay, I wanted to start talking to you, Blake, about shoes because I work in fashion where shoes as a concept attract a lot of silliness. I reckon they have more symbolism attached to them than any other fashion item. And I'm thinking of Carrie Bradshaw in Sex and the City saying that she would rather buy Manolo Blahniks than pay her rent. So in the fashion world, a beautiful pair of designer shoes equates to high status. But in your hands, they do stand for something totally different. Well, I mean, I think that the interesting thing about a shoe is that it really can represent a significant part of someone's self-esteem. I think the same thing that Carrie Blashaw is looking for in Sex and the City is the same thing that, frankly, a child in Rwanda or in Haiti at some level feels when they get uh, a pair of shoes that are new and personally given to them. And that is they feel better about themselves and they feel that they have value and they feel that someone cares about them. And it's funny, I started Tom's mainly to provide shoes to kids that needed them for their school uniforms or to help children have shoes for health benefits. But what I found in doing this for 11 years now is quite possibly the biggest impact that we're having is in children's self-esteem. Really? Um, Yeah, because many kids um, in in the communities that we serve have never been given anything that is only theirs. You know, almost all their clothes are hand-me-downs. Almost all the of their possessions have either been given to them from an older brother or sister or from a donation. And our shoes are always given to children as brand-new shoes. I see them just light up when they realize that no one had worn these before themselves. It's universal then. I mean, I always feel a bit guilty about that sort of... I don't know, that kind of feeling that fashion gives us self-worth and that feeling that we can spend all this money and feel like a better person. All that stuff makes me feel rather terrible about one of the sides of fashion. But if you put it in those terms, then I guess we're speaking to a universal feeling of self-worth, of pride. Yeah, I mean, really, it is. I mean, it's a very different way of going about getting it, you know, in the two examples. But I think they are linked to a singular human condition. How many pairs of shoes has Tom's given away to date, do you know? Yeah, we've given about 84 million pairs of shoes. 84 million pairs of shoes. That's a lot of shoes. It's incredible. The figure's incredible. 
<laughs> Blake, tell me about the story of how you began. So you were travelling in Argentina in 2006. You were 29 years old. You were on your fourth business at that time, which is a lot. <laughs> and you were taking some time out and you did what I guess many of us would do given that opportunity to kick back and relax in Argentina, take tango lessons, drink some wine, learn to play polo. But then what happened? Well, you know, when I was on this wonderful vacation and taking some time off, I I recognized that there was a lot of poverty around the outskirts of Buenos Aires where I was playing polo and doing things and the farm. And, and many of the children in the street, the street children, did not have shoes on. And I asked some questions about that, which led, as questions always do, to interesting answers. They got my curiosity going. And I recognized that there were uh, many kids who didn't have shoes, and, and I asked why they weren't in school. The response was that uh, many of these kids could not afford the uniform, and shoes was part of that uniform to go to school, and that was a requirement. And so it seemed to me that it was a crazy idea, you know, having grown up in a middle-class family in America, that children would be denied an education just because they didn't have the basic uniform and shoes. And so at the same time, I had noticed this shoe, they called it Alpregata, uh, that was, uh, I thought, very fun and stylish and different than anything I had ever worn or my friends had ever worn in California where I was living. And so I thought, you know, what if I made kind of a more fashionable and durable version of that shoe, sold it in the U.S., and then once a year it came back and gave all these kids a new pair of shoes as well. But who, I mean, who really does that? Like, I can understand that all of us would feel empathy about when we see disadvantage around, especially if you're having a good time, you're on holiday, you see a problem, you might want to solve it. But it's quite extreme then to move into actually solving it and into saying, I'm going to change my life, I'm going to set up a business and set about trying to solve this problem. It's enormous. Who does that? <laughs> well, I think the funny thing about it is, in retrospect, is I wasn't thinking that this was going to be a big business or that this was even going to be a huge time commitment in my life, much less a commitment of changing my life, because I really saw it as, you know, this one little town, this one little village that I had kind of grown a connection to. And this was kind of my way of giving back and doing something nice. And, and I just, you know, because I was an entrepreneur and not necessarily coming from the charity or philanthropy world, that's just the way that my, my kind of brain works, and that is, okay, well, if there's a problem or something that you want to have an impact or solve, you know, why don't you do something that is a solution that is connected to a business, so then you don't have to ask people for donations, you just ask them to support your business, and then you could do the good work that you want to do. And that intuitively kind of made sense to me back then, you know, and now obviously it's become, you know, widely accepted and popularized around the world. Um, but back then, it was a pretty radical idea. Did you think of starting a charity to begin with? No. I mean, I always wanted to do more good in the world through my businesses. Um, but this was the first business that I really thought, okay, its whole purpose is to do good. And the beginning, the name of Tom's came from this idea of tomorrow's shoes. So sell a pair of shoes today, provide a pair of shoes to someone in need tomorrow. Talk me through a little bit about that idea. Was there a light bulb moment when you thought this could be a business model that would work? Well, I think back then when I was calling them Tomorrow's Shoes, which was the original name, you know, it was really just a project. You know, it was really not a business. And then, you know, Tomorrow's was too long for the tags to shorten <laughs> that to Tom's on the shoe. And so then we started calling it Tom's and we started 
you know, selling them to our friends and neighbors and stuff in Los Angeles. And people thought they were pretty cool and they were different. And that was kind of fun. And But it wasn't that easy because you struggled to get them made in the first place, right? I mean, I've been reading your fantastic book and we will share the details of that in the show notes, Start Something That Matters. I've been taking notes and tagging it and underlining it. But you do tell the story in that book at the beginning that it was quite difficult to get any local shoemakers on board at the time in Argentina. People thought you were crazy. Yeah, people just didn't think that, A, Americans would buy these shoes because they were really seen more as really common people work shoes. They weren't really seen as fashion at all, you know, and, and so they were surprised on that. And then they really thought it was crazy that people would pay, you know, 40 bucks for them because, you know, we were we were creating a business model that would allow us to give away a pair as well, so building in some of that cost. And so, yeah, so it was really hard to get someone to, you know, want to partner with us. And we kind of had to go all around town and, and really beg a lot of people uh, in those early days, you know, but once we got, we got one or two guys that kind of had small shops kind of behind their houses that were making these. And, you know, we were making them in small numbers, you know, a couple hundred a week or something at that time. So it wasn't that hard. It was the big hard part actually was once the business started to take off and then we need to be making thousands and thousands of pairs a week. And that was a much more difficult problem to scale it because we just, none of the people with the organization at that time we were all more focused on the giving side. None of us had the production experience. I want to get into exactly how you turned that around. But first of all, I'd love to just take you back, Blake, to your childhood. Where does this drive come from? Your mum was an entrepreneur. She wrote a book that sold eventually 1.4 million copies called Butter Busters, didn't she, that came out of a desire to reduce her cholesterol. So she sort of set an example, I guess. Is that part of where this entrepreneurial drive came to you as a kid? I think the drive really came from being an athlete. Ah. Um, you know, being an athlete and wanting to be a great tennis player and learning self-discipline, learning hard work ethic and all that stuff. That's really where the drive came from. I think the entrepreneurial understanding came from watching my mom, you know, who was really just a full-time mom and housewife for many years and then writing a book and seeing her selling so many copies all over the world and really changing the way that people were thinking about monitoring cholesterol. And seeing that, I think, really inspired me that you can take an idea if you're passionate about it and really turn it into something. And you can get over failure. I mean, that's something that comes through very strongly in your book. And I think that listeners would feel empowered to hear about that. You don't automatically win. That's not how it works. Everyone who's been successful in this kind of space has had their hurdles and their falls, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, that. I think if there's one takeaway in the world of entrepreneurship, that's so important because I had some successes, I had some failures and and I think you hear a lot of you know great business leaders talk about learning so much from their failures, and that really is true. So I think it's important to always go into a new business with a humble spirit. You had the best intentions and greatest desires, but some will work and some won't, and that's not always dependent on on your talent. It's just a lot of a lot of things have to work right for a business to take off. But so how did you begin? So you're on your fourth business by the time you were in Argentina, supposedly taking time out. Talk us through a little bit about those early entrepreneurial days for you, Blake. You know, most of my businesses before Tom's were experiences that I had in life that there wasn't a business or a service 
that was available that I wanted. So my first business was a laundry service that I'd pick up and delivery laundry because I couldn't find one in my college that would provide that service and I needed it because I was having trouble doing my laundry because I had broken my leg and was on crutches and carrying my laundry was difficult. And then another business was really in response to seeing some of my employees of another business, their kids like complain about driver's education and the fact that the teachers were boring and the cars were old and it wasn't connected to technology. And so I created the first online driver's education company with hybrid vehicles. This is back in 2001. And so that really came once again, seeing a need that wasn't being fulfilled. So yeah, so most of what I've kind of done is rather than set out to create a business in a specific industry, yeah, it's more about just solving a problem as I experienced it in the world. Would it be fair to say you're super competitive? I mean, I'm trying to think about the psyche that causes someone to start four businesses before they're 19. You are really athletic. You were, in fact, in the amazing race. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that, you know, I, I still think I have a healthy dose of competitive spirit. I don't feel like I'm near as competitive as I once was. I think becoming a dad and maybe becoming 40, you just chill out a little bit. But yeah, in my 20s and 30s, I was incredibly competitive in everything I did. And I think that that helps a lot when you're starting out. It can hinder you as well because you can have blind spots with that level of competition. But for the most part, I think it's really helped my career. Okay, so drive a sort of healthy competitive spirit, ideas, the idea that you were looking for problems to solve and then throwing ideas at solving them. What else makes success in this space? And I want to talk to you in particular about this idea of doing good. I mean, when did you figure out that you wanted to use those entrepreneurial qualities to do something good? And what qualities does it take to pull that off? Well, I think most importantly, you have to really be passionately committed to the cause or the issue you're solving or you're fighting against or fighting for. You know, if it's just seen as something that you're doing as part of your organization, mm. I don't think it sticks. I think it has to be a really deep, authentic passion. Mm. And that's what it has always been for me. You're big on storytelling and the power of story. And you do write very beautifully and start something that matters about the power of storytelling and about this idea that if you're not really living it, it's not authentic and people aren't going to buy it, right? Yeah, I think that's super important. And, you know, it's even a lesson I have to continue to remind myself of. It's funny, you might, I wrote that book in 2010 and I can go back and flip through it. And some of the lessons that I shared with people in 2010 are the lessons that Tom's needs to pay attention to today. So you never really outgrow the lessons. They just become more or less important depending on the life cycle of your business and of your personal life. So then let's talk about storytelling. Obviously, Tom's is very driven by a kind of essentially simple story, but a powerful and emotional one, which is that we can harness that desire for something fashionable and fabulous and we can use it to do good. And it is just quite simple in a way, one for one. Talk to me a little bit more about this story of one for one. Well, I think that the main part of the story is the simplicity and is the idea that every customer gets to be a part of a solution with their purchases. And I think empowering people to make purchases that not only that they want, but to help people that have real needs is what makes it so powerful. And it's such a simple story and such a simple concept that it's really easy for people to share it. 
And I think the simpler your story, the more it gets shared, the more it gets shared, the more it gets popular. And that's a really good thing for any business. You've spoken a lot about this idea that the story kind of needs to travel and that if you add a human element to the story of a product, that's what makes people attached to it, I guess. And you've talked a lot about how facts on their own don't mean much, but if you add a story to them, then they develop wings, I guess. And I'm, I want to share with listeners that story of how you kind of first started out with Tom's because some of it is very colourful and you can really imagine it visually, can't you? Like this idea of here's Blake in his crazy big bus <laughs> delivering by hand thousands of pairs of shoes originally to children in Argentina. Tell us about that journey. It's kind of crazy. I mean, you did it yourself. I mean, you didn't do it with a great big infrastructure to begin with. You did it yourself. No, it was like me and my parents and my you know family and friends going down there and hand-placing shoes on kids' feet. And it was very grassroots and very raw. And, you know, the, the video footage and photographs that we put up online on the social networks were very unpolished and I think that's part of it is that word authenticity is we were really walking the walk and and people really wanted to connect to that especially in 2007, 8, 9 we just had a kind of financial crisis in the US and Mm. people were very non-trusting of business and disenfranchised with brands and so we were a breath of fresh air and a different way of looking at business and commerce. God, that's interesting when you talk about that disillusionment that people felt during that time with big business. I feel like we're back there. 2017 to me feels like a kind of time when there's a rising of consciousness and people are getting fed up with the spin that's being fed to them by big brands again. What do you think? Well, I think that what's happening, I mean, in different parts of the world, obviously, you know, there, there is more division and cynicism around big business. You know, I, I can't speak to what is going on in Australia, but definitely in the United States, I think we're kind of back a little bit in that same mind frame where uh, it's a real opportunity for activists and for people who have really clear ideals and values to band together and to create a real affinity with their customers. And so if a business is willing to really stand for something, it can actually stand out. And that's exactly what it was like in 2007. Mm. Thomas began with shoes, but one for one now applies to all sorts of products. I have a pair of your sunglasses, which are beautiful. So oh, gla- great. Yeah, they're really cool. And you know what? I have them because they're beautiful. And I think that's something we often raise in this conversation around ethical fashion, if you like, that the product has to speak for itself and the story augments it. But if the product isn't good, you're stuffed, right? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing with our shoes is they've gotten better over the years. You know, they weren't great in the beginning, and I think that our customers were really buying based on the mission okay. and the product. But over the years, as we've grown, we've been able to hire really great designers and great product development people, and, and that, I think, has made a big difference. And I think that, you know, now more than ever, because there's so many brands giving back, which is a beautiful thing, there's so many brands that have a purpose more than just profit, your product has to be amazing, you know, and it has to really stand on its own regardless of your social mission. Mm-hmm. And that's put, you know, pressure on us to make better and better products, which I think has made us a better and better company. I definitely think that as we launched our eyewear, you know, many years after our shoes, we put a lot more emphasis in the eyewear right from the beginning of just making a truly a premium product for the price. And I think almost all of our customers would, would say that is that, you know, that even if you didn't have the giving associated with it, 
It is an unbelievable product. And our footwear is getting better, I think, every day. So let's talk about the eyewear. So again, it's one for one. You sell a pair of sunglasses and you donate a pair of glasses. You have a partnership with Siva, which helps you distribute the glasses. Can you talk us through how that works? Yeah, so what we do is when you buy a pair of our eyewear, we do one of three things um, with Siva. We either give uh, a person a pair of prescription glasses that they need to see. Um, we do a cataract surgery for someone who is blind through cataract, or we do another type of, you know, kind of routine medical treatment. It might be an infection and need antibiotics. But basically, every purchase sold equals a person being helped with their eyesight. SIVA is a nonprofit uh, based in Berkeley, California, but operates all over the world. They were founded in the, you know, in the early 70s by humanitarians that wanted to make a difference in people's lives in really meaningful ways. They employ a lot of local workers in places, you know, like Nepal, where we do a lot of work, which is one of the reasons we chose them. So they go in with training and programs and infrastructure, but then they help really employ locals so that they can continue to do most of the routine work. And some of the doctors do come from the States, but most of the ones are, are locally trained. It's so cool, Blake. It really is. I feel like when you hear these stories, it's inspiring. And I'm sure that people are going to listen to this and think, I want to get involved in this space. I want to do something that actually has meaning and it reflects my core values. What, what would you say to those people who are listening? Do we all have it in us to do something in this kind of space, however small, that makes a difference? You know, I think everyone does. I don't know if everyone is calling us to do it in business. Mm. I mean, so I think there's there's no shame and nothing wrong with someone just having a job that provides a good income for themselves and their family. That is a reality for most people. It's hard to incorporate it into your business. But I do think if that is your case, there is still opportunities outside of your business to give your time or your resources uh, to really make a difference in someone's life. And I always say, you know, I learned this from a mentor of mine early on is, you know, kind of the more you give, the more you live. And the truth is, is as much as it's called giving, uh, I feel like it's really receiving because we only get more and more blessed from those experiences. They open our hearts, which then gives us more creativity, more vitality, more interaction with the world. And I think that that's just an absolutely amazing thing. And so I'm so grateful that my life's work has led me to this way because I don't think I would live such a full life if it hadn't. How has becoming a father changed you in terms of how you view all this? You mentioned that before, but does it kind of shake up your priorities? It must do. Well, I think that your priorities change on, on many different accounts. I mean, I'm now a new dad. You know, I have a son and I'm getting ready to have a daughter in the next three weeks. And so in three weeks. I thought it was soon. Yeah, thank you. Three weeks. Crikey. Well, thanks for talking to me now. You know, your priorities are changing based on your life situations all the time. You know, I feel like some people, you know, in their early 20s and 30s are trying to make a living and, and save some money. And, and I think that's important, you know. But as they have made some money and they have an opportunity to share their resources, then I think that's important. And your priorities will change based on your life situation. And I think what's most important is you have the giving spirit regardless of your, of your income, your situation. I think I've heard many times before that, if someone's not generous when they make 
you know, $50,000 a year, they won't be generous if they make $5 million a year. And I think that that's true. Mm. I think you can cultivate a spirit of generosity regardless of your income level. And I think that cultivation, that spirit translates into everything that you do. Mm, that's interesting. Just in the context of how big business can give back, obviously, if we take that as a premise that if you're generous of spirit, it matters not much how much income you have or how much you're giving. But impact-wise, when some of these big companies do throw large amounts of money at, say, environmental or social problems, they can make huge impacts. Why is it, do you think that more big business leaders don't wade into this space? Or are you seeing that they are in fact doing that? I mean, you must meet a lot of change makers and a lot of important, powerful head honchos. Yeah, I think I think more and more businesses are. Look, I always say that the way that this mentality becomes the norm is because it has to be good for business. Like, there's a lot of businesses that the CEO or the founders might do philanthropy outside of their business because mm. that's just the type of people they are. But in order to incorporate it into the business, I think it still goes kind of to that the old adage of it must be good for the shareholders, it must be good for the business. And so the more we can prove, like with Tom's, that by living this way and operating this way, it actually helps our business grow because our customers are more loyal, they're more evangelists for what we're doing, uh, then more companies will follow Tom's and do this. But it has to still be good for business. No business will do it for, they might do it for a short period, but they won't do it long term unless it helps their bottom line. I mean, do you think this is the business model of the future? I mean, if we look at the context, there is a rising interest in an engagement with the B Corp space, for example. And I think on a smaller scale, I come across lots of ethical fashion startups that do have this idea of core values of social entrepreneurship. Do you think this is the way of the future? Like you started in 2006, but in 2017, is this how success is going to look for uh, more businesses? Yeah, I definitely think this is the way of the future because I think customers are demanding it. You know, I think customers are not okay with just purchasing products and not knowing the values behind the brand. So I think the, the faster that customers change is the faster that businesses change. Can you even make as much success when you look at a model like this as you could if you were purely looking at it from a capitalist perspective? Is it about recalibrating or redefining our idea of success or what success looks like? Yeah, to some degree. I mean, you have to reimagine what value really is, right? And what you're creating in your life. And and if just the bottom line is the only measure of success, then I think this model will lose. Mm. But if how we treat our people and how we take care of our planet is part of the same measurement of success as profit, then I think this model and this value does quite well. Every company says it's about the people mm. and that people are so important, but very few companies have policies that really are people first. You know, an example is there's a lot of companies still in the United States that don't even have a, a really good maternity program, much less a paternity leave, which we have at Tom's where we give moms and dads paid time off to really connect with their new child. And, and so it's those types of things that I think are important, not just the words you put on the page. Well, it's deeply rooted in culture, isn't it? In business culture. And I guess it's easier to set that up from the outset than it is to change some old clunky beast that doesn't have good culture. Yeah, absolutely. I was thinking then, as you spoke of an example 
of Patagonia, for instance, that has, I mean, everyone's heard of Yvonne Chouinard's book, Let My People Go Surfing, but that kind of yeah. ingrained culture of we want you to have a life that is beyond this office, you know, what do you think? That's absolutely right. You know, it's, it's, it's so much easier to do it from the onset. And there are other companies. I mean, Starbucks is a great example. Patagonia is a great example. Ben and Jerry's is a great example. I mean, there's more and more companies today that are actually great examples, um, which I think entrepreneurs can really look up to and learn from. So what would you say the core values of Tom's are as a company outside of the obvious one for one? Sure. Yeah. I mean, our main mission is to really use business to improve lives. So that means not just the lives of the kids that we're giving shoes to, but the lives of all of our employees, all of our factory workers, um, really any life that is touched by Tom's or goes into the process of making and selling and distributing Tom's, we want to make sure we're improving. And so we kind of focus everything on that. And then as part of that, you know, we have you know, some core values around having fun and taking fun seriously. <laughs> You're letting your people go surfing. <laughs> exactly. Are you, you know, you've got to make, if someone's spending most of their life working, you need to make it fun. That's your responsibility as an employer. You know, we take what we do very seriously, but we try not to take ourselves too seriously. I'm into this idea of letting your staff support causes or values that float their boats and I'm talking specifically about tomorrow's project which I just kind of started reading about so it launched in January of last year how exactly does the tomorrow's project work sure so we uh through Tom's have created you know more wealth than we ever could have imagined in our family you know and we've been a very successful business financially beyond the 84 million shoes that we've given away and the hundreds of thousands of eyesight surgeries and glasses. And, and so my wife and I said, gosh, like we get to do some amazing philanthropy outside of Tom's now. We support a lot of endangered species preservations. Uh, you know, we work with the rhinos. Heather does a lot of work with the Big Cat Initiative and National Geographic. We, you know, get to help organizations that are in the water space and the adoption space. So we wanted to make sure that our staff would also get to kind of find passion projects outside of Tom's and support them. And so Heather and I made a gift uh, to the company of about $3 million a couple of years ago and basically created a, a structure to where every month we have $10,000 set aside for a staff member to dedicate it to a cause they care about. It can be quite big stuff. I mean, I'll just share yeah. one that I read about, which was an idea from a guy who works in finance. And his idea was reforest the Amazon. I mean, it's enormous. <laughs> Another one was titled Defy the Gods. So I love that these are kind of really big picture goals. But yeah, tell us a little bit about, you know, how this stuff works. So obviously you can't reforest the Amazon on $10,000, but... The idea behind some of these initiatives is to, what, set up grassroots projects that might affect change or talk us through a little bit of that. Well, I think the thing is, is it goes to that idea that everyone can do something that makes the world a better place. And this idea that $10,000 isn't going to you know, change the Amazon, but if it goes to an organization that is working towards that, that's saving more trees than would be otherwise. So I think that it's about, you know, little ideas can really make a big difference as well as big ideas and big amounts of money. And you got to always think that way. You've traveled a great deal and 
in some ways, Tom's has kind of been formed via you traveling and seeing the world. I know you're really athletic and you love to be outdoors. How motivated are you when it comes to saving the environment? And I suppose my question is, what keeps you awake at night? Because I worry about climate change personally. Yeah, I mean, you know, climate change is such a complex issue. And unfortunately, there's not enough people taking it seriously. So, you know, it is an issue that I care a lot about. I'm a, I'm a big surfer and I, you know, spend a lot of my time in our national parks. And it really scares me that, that we're not doing enough to protect them, especially for future generations. You know, I think that as we think about that issue, I think what's so important is, you know, and this is happening, you know, to some degree in certain circles is that it really just becomes more of a state of emergency more than an issue to talk about because it really is in my mind that's the case. And that's going to require, in order to deal with the state of emergency, it's really a government issue as much as it is also private business. And so really it's going to be public-private partnerships and just a change in mindset around the state of emergency about climate change before I'm going to feel better about it. Mm, how do you approach just what you as a business can do in terms of TOMS? How do you approach things like carbon offsetting? Is that something that you get involved in? We haven't done any carbon offsetting. We've tried to look at our supply chain and improve in any area that's economically feasible to do so. I think it's an area that probably is, if you were scoring TOMS and all of our kind of social responsibility, that's probably our weakest area. I think it's, you know, supply chains and making shoes just in general is not the most environmental friendly thing to do. And so we have to constantly look at the supply chain and find little wins, whether it be the way we do our packaging or changing different types of glues or using a, a hemp or an organic cotton instead of a regular one. Like these are little things that we can do, but at the scale that we're at, it can make a sizable difference, you know, really looking at our water usage on the supply chain. So one of the things I really admire about Patagonia is they built their whole business around this. And they're the first ones to tell you that they're still not very good at it. <laughs> I love that transparency because it's so easy for us, for especially for them, who does so much to point to good things. But I think you know, the real character of business is like being able to say where you're not great at things and where you can improve. And that's definitely um, how we all feel at Tom's. Is that we're always constantly looking for ways to improve and knowing that, you know, this is an area uh, that we can continually improve in. If you had to share a couple of pieces of top line advice to listeners dreaming of their own startups, what might they be, Blake? You know, I think, I think one of the most important things, and I think sometimes it sounds like a cliche, and people might roll their eyes a little bit, is really you've got to follow your passion. At the end of the day, you're going to do your best work, whether it's a startup or a job or anything in your life, if you really, really are excited about it when you wake up in the morning. If you're just starting a business because you think it's a good business idea and a way to make money, or even if you're starting a business because you think it's a way to make a difference in the world, but you don't really, really are passionate about it, I don't think it'll be successful. It's too competitive. It takes too many hours, too much personal sacrifice to make a business a success. And so, you know, it's like really look yourself in the mirror and say, okay, do I really, really care about this? And if I don't, then you've got to look and find something else because we just spend too much of our life, whether it's a job or a startup or whatnot, 
dedicated to building something. And you don't want to look back and say, gosh, there's so much more I would have done if I just had followed my passion. It's Mark Twain. You're more likely to regret the things that you haven't done than those that you have. I, I totally agree with that. Blake, we began this interview talking about Vogue and shoes and sex in the city. <laughs> Sorry about that. Yeah. I'd like to end it in a similar vein by asking you about Vogue because talking about the kind of desirability of product, one of your first pieces of big flashy publicity was having your shoes featured in the pages of Vogue alongside some Manolo Blahniks, no less. And um, I wrote this down that Vogue praised Tom's shoe designs as effortless and principled. Now, I used to work at Vogue and effortless is like Vogue speak for the best thing ever. So uh, <laughs> my question is, how much does this stuff matter? Did you have the kind of seal of approval from the fashion industry broadly when in a way you kind of operate slightly at a distance from hardcore designer fashion? Yeah, I mean, we definitely operate at a pretty safe distance from hardcore designer fashion. But having that approval, um, and especially when we were early stage startup and trying to get credibility and getting appointments with buyers at department stores and with distributors. I see uh, Anna, I always tell her thank you, and still to this day, um, because, you know, her support and Vogue support has been huge for Tom's. And not just hers and the U.S. Vogue, but all the Vogue's around the world have really been supporters, uh, whether it's in Australia or Korea or in Germany. And I feel that, you know, that has gone a long way. And so it's something we don't take lightly. We're very grateful for and it also helps us to kind of remember our heritage. And so sometimes we can get too kind of consumer product focused and forget that we're a fashion company. And then sometimes we get too focused on fashion and forget, you know, that we need to really listen to our consumer and be more practical in some areas and some of our businesses. So I think that, you know, we're very grateful for that publicity. Um, it went a long way back then of giving us credibility and the relationship with Vogue continues to be very strong today and something I'm very thankful for. Not bad for a long-haired man who used to wear two separate mismatched shoes in order <laughs> to draw attention to yourself. <laughs> yeah, those are the days. Now I, I think um, people just look at me with weird thoughts and I did that. that was, it worked and it was a charming trick, but I think it's only one I can use once. I love it. Can we finish up just by talking about the power of words, having also touched on this idea of storytelling? I love how you wrote your own job title, and it is Chief Shoe Giver. <laughs> yeah, and you know, one of the things in the early days of Tom's is I thought just job titles in general were kind of ridiculous when you only had eight or ten people at a company. So I'd let everyone choose their own titles, and one of the interns said, well, what's your title? And I said, I don't know, I guess I'm the chief shoe giver. And then that stuck and it's been with me ever since. So I always get a laugh when I'm introduced on a stage or something. And that's how they introduce me. I love it. And also it's magical, the idea that you can make your own destiny. Call yourself what you want. Call yourself Lord of the Universe if you want, as long as you can pack it up with actions. I agree. <laughs> Thank you so much, chief shoe giver, for sharing your time with the Wardrobe Crisis podcast. It was really fun. Thank you so much, Claire. It's getting hard My parents feel that I'm defending you I tell them all that they are wrong Because I love you Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. 
you can get in touch there and I really hope you will I'd love to hear from you and you can also find links to my social media and finally if you're enjoying the show please head over to iTunes and subscribe you know what they say first in best dressed subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis so I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion the better music is by Montaigne she recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell you where, okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My friends don't feel that I'm carrying a steel. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you, because I love you. Because I love you Because I love you